The, uh, the following uh, is a real article about a real event. In fact, I've actually told you about it before. 2017. The headline is this. Worcester Cathedral's asparagus blessing goes awry when Gus the asparagus man attends in costume. Worcester Cathedral is an Anglican church in Worcester, England. Um, I don't know if they pronounce it Worcester. I grew up in New England and in Massachusetts it's Worcester. But An asparagus blessing at Worcester Cathedral went awry last Sunday when Gus the Asparagus Man joined the procession while dressed as a giant asparagus spear, the BBC reports. Many of the Anglicans in attendance for the crowded St. George's Day service called the display a pantomime, with a lobby group Christian Concern complaining that Gus's inclusion, quote, made a mockery of Christian worship. I would, I would agree with that sentiment. To mark the start of the British Asparagus Festival, a bundle of asparagus spears have been brought to the cathedral from the town of Evesham to receive a blessing. Canon Precentor, that's sort of like a senior pastor uh, of the Worcester Cathedral, Reverend Michael Brierley, called the plant a sign of the abundant provision and generosity of God. And he defended Gus's inclusion, saying it, it added a bit of color. The Canterbury priest, Reverend Peter Ould, disagreed. He said, I, I think the service itself is a good idea. There isn't anything wrong in praying for a good growing season. But someone dressed up as an asparagus and a bloke in a St. George's costume behind him holding a sword that looks just a bit silly. Others expressed concern about the lack of inclusion of other produce. Why only the adoration of asparagus? Where's the sprout liturgy or equality for mushrooms? Gus is one of several asparagus characters that help celebrate the annual asparagus festival. He attended the St. George's Day service absent of the Asparamancer, Eve the Asparafairy, and the Asparagus King. Now, I've said this before, but here at Redemption Bible Church, we will not be participating in the blessing of the asparagus, or the blessing of the bikes, or the blessing of the puppies, or anything like that. It's not that we don't like those things. In fact, we ought to pray for a good growing season, right? It's getting to be hard, uh, planting time. Um, but those kind of silly shenanigans, I think we all agree, they make, a, they make a mockery of Christian worship. And while that is really one example, there are many churches who gather every Sunday and they also make a, a mockery. While this is, uh, in fact, you know what, it, it, some of them are doing it right now on Easter Sunday. Several years ago, there was a very influential megachurch in South Carolina. They opened their Easter service with the song Highway to Hell by ACDC. I wonder how they started their service this morning. Why wouldn't they do things like that? For a generation. Corporate worship, the gathering together of the saints, has been transformed from including congregational singing 
into an, an amplified performance by a worship band. In fact, I'll tell you, just between us, the dirty little secret is that worship pastors, or maybe just pastors in general, all wish that they were rock stars. And so what we find is that liturgy has been thrown out the window as being sort of archaic and stuffy and anything that hints of formality or tradition for that matter. Reverence is immediately dismissed. Nearly every city has a new church plant in it whose, whose tagline is something like this, church for people who don't like church. Which makes about as much sense as saying, the bride of Christ for people who don't like the bride of Christ. Our generation, with the advent of the mega church and mega budgets, has kind of gone off the deep end with regards to worship. We're not unique. In the New Testament, Paul chastised the Corinthians for their drunken communion feasts. Jesus himself cleansed the temple two different times. His brother James warns of churches who would favor the rich. In the Old Testament, we read verses like Malachi chapter 1, verse 14, which says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Or Isaiah chapter 29, verses 13 and 14. The Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, and wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be hidden. They will look stupid and foolish in their worship services, God says. Maybe they'll even look as foolish as a grown man dressed like an asparagus sitting in a cathedral. How about from church history? I mentioned earlier that in, in some cases, amplified worship bands are drowning out congregational singing. Do you know that in the, in the pre-Reformation era, pre, uh, pre-1500s, the only people allowed to sing in church were professional clergy-trained choirs. And so when the reformers came on the scene, they not only reformed the theology, teaching that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, they also made a point to reform worship. And so many of the songs that we sing today directly have their roots in the Reformation. In fact, many of the songs that we sing come directly from the, the first great awakening. Think Charles Wesley and Isaac Watts, among many others. These hymn writers were directly influenced by the reforms and the theology of the previous generations. And they gave us a, a biblically rich hymnody that we still rely on. Today, the best modern hymn writers pattern their work after those men in that era and not the latest trendy pop music. Here's why this is important. One of the convictions 
coming out of the period of the Reformation was the idea that, that worship is regulated by Scripture or that there are guidelines for worship in the Bible. And so, for example, the Second London Baptist Confession, 1689, says this, The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. In other words, as John Calvin said, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned in his word. If we held to that, what's known as the regulative principle, we wouldn't be seeing Gus the Asparagus Man as part of our worship. In fact, our worship services wouldn't be about us at all, but about the one that we worship. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says this, Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Hi, Stella. <laughs> Nadab and Abihu were two brothers who did not write those verses, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. But given the chance today, they would certainly add, I believe, their hearty amen. See, these, these infamous brothers were struck down by the consuming, holy presence of God for offering up strange, unauthorized, profane fire before the Lord. So turn to Leviticus chapter 10. We've been working our way through this book, The Law of God. I think this whole chapter could be taken together um, as a whole, but I want us to also get to the New Testament this morning. So we're just going to look at the beginning of this account today, and then um, in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we will, we will pick back up right here. So I'm going to read the whole chapter, though, so that we get a feel for what's happening here. Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron... Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called uh, Mishael and uh, Elzaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose. Do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. Do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. 
And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons. Take the grain offering that is uh, left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. The breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your sons due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel. The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord, as it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and the burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Let's just stop and ask the Lord to help us here. Father, I do pray that you would give us ears to hear today. Help us to understand your word. These are some difficult passages, some difficult uh, commands. Things are happening that we don't understand. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom. Speak to us today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As bizarre as it may seem, this text is one of the, one of the passages of Scripture that has instructed the church, really, for, for about 2,000 years about how we should think about approaching God's house in worship. Do we really believe, as Hebrews 12.29 says, that our fire? These verses stand in stark contrast to the previous two chapters that we've looked at over the past several weeks. We've been working through the book of Leviticus we saw that chapter 8 is about the ordination of Aaron and his sons to the ministry of the priesthood. And last week, we looked at chapter 9 in the account of, of Aaron's first sacrificial offerings. And so we saw that there is this transition of the, of the mediator between God and his people. It moves from Aaron, uh, from Moses rather, to the Aaronic priests, to Aaron and his sons and their descendants after them. Repeatedly, in chapters 8 and 9, we are assured that Moses and Aaron did everything. It says over and over again, as the Lord commands. We saw that over and over in chapters 8 and 9. But look at the first words of chapter 1. 
Nadab and Abihu, the, uh, chapter 10, sorry. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, laid incense on it, and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Which he had not commanded them. Additionally, we should compare the last verse of chapter 9 and the second verse of chapter 10. The last verse of chapter 9 says, and, and fire came out from before the Lord and, and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Verse 2, chapter 10, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. I'll, I'll tell you right now that there's actually, a, there's actually a twist ending to this chapter. I don't know if you caught it when I read it, but as the chapter opens, we find no indication of how much time has passed between chapters 9 and chapter 10. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 10, when Aaron finally speaks, he holds his, holds his peace for the entire chapter, but in the last couple of verses, he finally speaks. And when he does, he drops the, drops the bombshell that this happened on the same day. That this fire came out two times on the same day. The whole chapter is about divine judgment. Leviticus chapter 10 is all about divine judgment. But not on the wicked people of the world. It's about divine judgment on disobedient priests within the household of faith. Within the people of God. And the speed and the severity of the punishment. It ought to stand as a warning to all of us who would, who would fool around with the holy commands of a holy God. Someone said something like this, The holiness of God is dangerous unless approached by the proper persons and according to the proper rules. The holiness of God is dangerous unless we approach him on his terms. So the question that we really need to wrestle with this morning is this. Do we really believe that God is holy and just? Do we really believe that God is holy and just? You might also be thinking this question. Is this really what you're preaching on Easter? Stay with me because we're going to get into the New Testament here. As we've already seen... And again, we're, we're going to come back to this next week. But this chapter opens here with God's swift judgment. God's swift judgment. Let, let me read these verses, just the first couple of verses again. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Now, if you go back into the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verse 23, tells us that Nadab and Abihu were the oldest of Aaron's four sons. And as this story begins, they bring an, an incense offering before the Lord in their censers, or some versions might just call them fire pans. 
These are basically containers that are used in worship that could carry hot coals. Before we focus on the fire and what happened with all of this, I need to point out that these brothers, Nadab and Abihu, they were privileged leaders of the people of Israel. They were sons of the high priest. They were nephews of Israel's chosen leader and deliverer, Moses. Remember, Moses and Aaron are brothers. Nadab and Abihu were in leadership among the spiritual leaders, the priests. In fact, listen to Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 to 11. It says this, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw uh, the God of Israel. Under his feet, as it were, were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief of the men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They had been invited by the Lord to come partway up his mountain and to eat of this covenant meal. These men had looked upon, they had seen the glory of the Lord. They had been chosen. They had been set apart for the service of the tabernacle. And then they swiftly fell under divine judgment. Why? Why was their ordination service, chapter 9, why was their ordination service longer than the entirety of their ministry? The first thing they did got them killed. The first thing they did as priests got them killed. Well, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, actually gives us a little bit more insight into this. So the first couple of verses of Leviticus 16 says this, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now, I know that we're kind of jumping around a little bit. We're going to get to chapter 16 eventually, but for now we can see just in those two verses they, they seem to imply that their sin, the sin of Nadab and Abihu, was twofold. First, they approached the Lord's presence at a time that he had not authorized. Again, it says this, Tell your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. That, that phrase there, at any time, it doesn't mean don't ever come. In fact, chapter 16 is the instruction for when he specifically was to come. It, it means don't just come whenever. Don't just come at any time. Aaron was to approach when the Lord commands. The priest was to approach God when God required. And, and then secondly, according to those verses, they tried to enter a holy place that they were not authorized to enter. Namely, the most holy place, the holy of holies. Notice the phrase that says, before the Lord. It's used twice in these few verses, and, and again, in, right at the last verse of chapter 9. This is a reference to the Holy of Holies, before the Lord. So it seems, it seems that their sin 
was in attempting to enter a place they were not called to enter, and at a time they could not come. But there is more to it than that, because Leviticus tells us that they also attempted to bring unauthorized or strange fire. Now, again, in chapter 16, verse 12, um, the Lord will tell us, it really tells us that the Lord commands that the high priest is to do almost exactly what they did. Except Nadab and Abihu used a strange fire. And that doesn't necessarily mean odd or weird. Strange there means foreign. Think stranger. So there's a foreign or, or maybe even a pagan element that they were introducing. We actually, we actually don't even know what this strange fire was. It's likely that it was a common fire, just, a, just like a campfire. We also don't know why they did this. The simple fact is that they did it. They brought confusion and strangeness into the Lord's dwelling place, or at least they attempted to. And it would have had the effect of, of bringing confusion, maybe even syncretism, this blending of religions into the worship of the Lord. In many ways, these brothers, these sons of Aaron, were like, they were like another son who also tried to worship the Lord on his own terms. Genesis chapter 4 famously tells us in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the, door, at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. When it, comes to, when it comes to the worship of the Lord on his terms, we need to understand that there's, there's really no room for innovation. There's no room for embellishment. Now we have freedom, but there's no room to approach God out of the... We can't say the Lord knows our hearts because he does, and that's the problem, right? Nadab and Abihu, it, there's no indication here that they held any malice. There's no indication that they were wicked in their hearts when they did this. They were not like Eli's sons that we read about in the uh, first chapters of 1 Samuel. The priest Eli's sons, the Lord says that they were worthless men who did not know the Lord. They were priests who took advantage of the people. We don't see anything like that here about these two. In fact, all we know about worship here over these past several chapters, they very well could have prepared with sincerity and reverence as they understood it. They very may, may well have said, the Lord knows my heart. Surely he will not strike me down. But God is holy and just. And he will not allow his most holy place to become defiled. Remember in Eden, 
Adam allowed the unholy in, and God graciously did not consume Adam and Eve with fire immediately. That was his mercy. And now on day one of tabernacle worship, they attempt, Nadab and Abihu attempt to bring in something unholy, something strange, something unauthorized. And and you know what? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. We've forgotten that this is true. It looks like God is just simply cruel here. But the wages of sin is death. God is a just God. We know that the wages of sin is death someday, right? We hear about that. We think about that. It's true someday. We know that we'll die eventually. But it's only by the grace and mercy of God that it doesn't come to pass immediately. And here, immediately after this punishment is handed down, Probably still with with shock on everybody's faces. Everybody that saw this is just standing there, eyes wide open, mouth hanging open, wondering what in the world just happened. Moses intervenes and he gives this statement in verse 3. This is what the Lord has said. In fact, then Moses said to Aaron, I picture him getting right in Aaron's face, stepping right in here looking straight in the eyes of his brother who just lost his sons and saying, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The Lord has said, I will show myself to be holy. I will display my glory. He alone is worthy of all worship honor in praise in the way that he requires simply because of who he is. And Aaron held his peace. He bit his tongue. Aaron knew God's righteous requirements. He himself had been guilty of what looks like in our eyes at least a far greater sin. Exodus chapter 32 verse 21 says this, Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, Let anyone who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Aaron had been guilty. Aaron made an idol for the people to worship. He had been guilty and he had been spared. But he had also seen the blood that was shed because he did not protect the worship of Yahweh. Just a few verses after that in Exodus 32, it says this. Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, 
Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. The wages of sin is death, and Aaron had seen this. But that's not all. In fact, just a few verses after that tells us that Moses actually had to make a a special intercession to the Lord to plead with him to not to, to relent from pouring out his wrath on the people and consuming all of them. All because Aaron didn't say no to the people who demanded an idol. Aaron held his peace here in Leviticus chapter 10 because he knows that God is holy and just. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is holy and just? Do you believe that God is righteous? The psalmist tells us in Psalm 119, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. The wages of sin is death. Psalm 145, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works, and the wages of sin is death. Aaron held his peace, even in the face of losing two sons. God is righteous. Turn to Romans chapter 3. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, Kind in all his works. Romans chapter 3 verse 21 says this. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Four times in these verses... The Apostle Paul, who is writing to the church at Rome, four times here, he writes of God's righteousness. See, all through the first chapters of of Romans, he's painted a picture of the sinful unrighteousness of mankind. He says, no one is righteous, not even one. But there is righteousness that is available through the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says. And it's this righteousness... It's this righteousness that it comes only through Jesus Christ. It is this righteousness that delivers mankind from sin. And then Paul proceeds here to unfold this righteousness like he's unfolding a sheet or a covering. And he does so in in four stages. There's four folds to this. First, we see the testimony in verse 21 of the law and the prophets All of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament points to our need for justification, for our need for righteousness. In fact, Paul says, now salvation has come. 
Now all that was foretold in the law and the prophets has been made manifest, has been revealed to us in Christ Jesus. What does the law tell us there in Leviticus chapter 10? It tells us the same thing that we saw in the Garden of Eden. And when Aaron made the golden calf, it tells us the same thing. It tells us that the wages of sin is death. But the law and the prophets are pointing to a promise, a promise of life, a promise of redemption, a promise of reconciliation, a promise of righteousness, a promise that we first see in the garden in Genesis 3.15. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He's speaking to the serpent. He's speaking to Satan. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring. The offspring of the woman. There is a better son coming. The promise is. A better offspring. One who is the righteousness of God. Look at this phrase again at the beginning of, of, of verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ, Jesus Christ for all who believe. Jesus, Jesus zealously defended his father's house, flipping over tables, making a whip, driving out the money changers. He is the Son of God who perfectly fulfilled the law. He's also the object of our faith. He's the one who said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus is the one, who, the one to trust. He is the one, we receive our righteousness through him. And we have to. We have to receive our righteousness through him. This is the second reveal, the second fold here. Verse 22, pick it up kind of in the middle of this. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all on par with Nadab and Abihu because we have all sinned, every one of us. What did they do wrong? They sinned and fell short of the glory of God. That's not just two ways of saying the same thing, by the way. It's actually two different problems. They're related, they're connected. But there's actually two different problems there. See, sin is a violation of God's law. It's a transgression of his righteous standard. But to fall short, that's a far bigger issue. To fall short of the glory of God is a, is a broader concept. It's a big picture. See, Nadab and Abihu, they failed to display the glory of God as he intended. They failed to exactly reflect his glory when they approached his holiness on their own terms instead of the very specific ways that he's been explaining all through the book of Leviticus so far. This was because uh, this, was a, this was a transgression and it was not allowed before the Lord and so they were consumed. Notice the sentence continues. There's not, a, there's not a period at the end of verse 23. The sentence goes on, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. The, the bad news, the bad news for us is that, is that we're living between Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 
and two. That's where we're living. Right between verses one and two. Let me read that again so you can understand this. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They sinned and fell short of the glory of God. That's where we stand. Verse 2 is God's judgment. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. We live right between these two verses. Put it this way, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and fire came down from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. But God. But God. But God is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is righteous in all his works and kind in all his ways. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent a a better son who, not coincidentally, is also a better high priest than they were. A better son who committed no sin and perfectly reflected the glory of God. A son who, Hebrews tells us, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the final unfolding here. Jesus is our salvation. We are justified by his grace as a gift. He is our justification. Through his work on the cross, he declares that justice has been served. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, he sets us free from our bondage to sin. This son, Paul says here in Romans, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, And that word propitiation, that's a, a big word. It means to appease wrath. That means that the punishment that was poured out on Nadab and Abihu was poured out on Jesus Christ for you. That means the punishment that they bore justly because they sinned and the wages of sin is death. The punishment that they bore, Christ steps in in verse 2. And takes ours for us. As many who would believe in him. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Why? Why did he do that? It says it explicitly right here in the middle of verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, his patience, he passed over former sins. He passed over your former sins. He didn't kill you on the spot. Or me. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you understand? The Lord has shown mercy to you and poured out his wrath on Christ 
on our behalf. The Lord is holy and just, and he is gracious and merciful. He is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Everyone, the promises, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, but call upon the name of the Lord. Rejoice that he has saved you. Pray with me. Father, we do come to you this morning rejoicing that that in Christ there is therefore now no condemnation. That he has absorbed the wrath of God. That for as many as believed him have called upon the name of Jesus Christ, you have given us the right to to be called children of God. Invited us into your family that we might come to your table and eat and drink as children with the inheritance of eternal life. And so we come to you this morning, we come to the table this morning rejoicing, rejoicing that you have sent Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins, that you have so loved us that you have sent your Son to bear the punishment for our unholiness that we might be called children of God. And so we come rejoicing to your table this morning, Lord. And so let us eat and drink and rejoice. Let us go this afternoon to our family gatherings, to our Easter dinners and rejoice knowing that the words on the cross are true, that it is finished. That for all who have received him, who have believed in his name, are safe. I've been seated in the heavenly places with our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.